iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good afternoon and welcome to the Apple Store Soho for today's Meet the Filmmaker event. Acclaimed filmmaker James Gray joins us to discuss his new film, Two Lovers, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Vanessa Shaw. Written and directed by Gray, the story is a Brooklyn-set romantic drama about a bachelor torn between the family friend his parents wish he would marry and his beautiful but volatile new neighbor. Talk Cinema's Harlan Jacobson will moderate the discussion. Please join me in welcoming James Gray and Harlan Jacobson. Hi, welcome um, to our discussion with James Gray and Two Lovers. I don't know um, <clears throat> how many of you have seen uh, other James Gray movies, um, starting with Little Odessa uh, way back in 94, was it? It was shot in 94. It came out in 95. Right. And uh, they always have a particularly New York flavor about them, um, often uh, set in the underworld. Uh, this is hardly set in the underworld, but it's very New York and New Yorky. It's set in Brooklyn. I think in order to get a sense uh, and a feel for the, the terrain of the film, we ought to show the uh, trailer that Magnolia Pictures, which is distributing the film, uh, has prepared so that you can see this in any movie theater, but you're here with us and it gives you a good sense of what uh, the arc of the film is. Would you run that, Frank? Hi. You live here, right? Yeah. Well, my parents do. I'm staying with them. This is my son, Leonard. I know. Hi. Is that your bedroom in the back? I can see you from my apartment. Our parents wanted us to meet. Actually, I wanted to meet you. Hey, are you going to the city? Uh, yeah. Oh, great. You can keep me company. So Michelle tells me you guys are neighbors. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to keep an eye on her for me. How you doing? Your parents told me you'd be home. They said you wanted me to come over. This wasn't your idea for me to come over, was it? I don't like it. I'm gonna go dancing with some friends of mine. Why don't you come with us? Uh -huh. He says he's gonna stay with his wife. I want to take care of you. I feel like I understand you. I'm so lost, Leonard. What's wrong, you okay? Yeah, I'm just thinking about my friend of mine. I love you. Oh, God. You'd think if I got to know you that I wouldn't love you. But I do know you, and I love you even more. My daughter is crazy about you. She is my life. You can clap. I had absolutely nothing to do with putting that trailer together. Um, you know, we're, we're in some ways having seen Little Odessa and The Yards and We Own the Night, people uh, come to expect that you're going to set a film uh, in the, some kind of underworld. The corruption is somehow or other going to be involved. 
And yet, that's really not the topic here. The topic here is a love story, and it's a, it, it's, it involves choices. Um, and rather than see this as anything as a departure for you, which I'm not entirely sure that it is, in many ways it, it strikes me as, well, I would recognize this uh, as your work, uh, not just because it's set in New York, set in New York which it is, uh, because it looks like a film that is filmed by you, but because it involves very tight-knit uh, immigrant families, uh, Jewish families, uh, possibly even Russians. In some ways, maybe the genre changes uh, because their clothes changed a little bit, but it's, it's very essentially you because the conflict is something that I recognize that leaps from you know, one work of yours to the other, and that is a, um, a kind of uh, decision uh, that a character's face uh, between whether they are capable of exercising their own free will and, and acting in a way that is outside all of the social determinants that drives them, um, or whether it's simply too powerful to resist that big matrix of things that make you you, right from, you know, the, the milk you're raised on to the, the DNA that, you know, that, that, that you possess. So I wonder, you know, if you would talk a little bit about uh, making that sort of transition and remaining true to what you think of as yourself and representing, you know, that group, that people, that group of people that you find so fascinating over across the East River. Well, I, I was, I made a conscious decision to leave genre convention aside. And I, I, I had wanted to make a film that was entirely, quite frankly, against the flow of what is in fashion which I saw as a kind of almost ironic or hipster tone, uh, almost like a, you know, talking down to the characters, the experience, you know, where you go to the movies and everybody in the film is an idiot and you're twice as smart as they are and you can laugh at them. And the idea that I had to make the film was to, you're quite right, it's to sort of keep it in the same spirit of things that I am obsessed with, but at the same time remove any of the the kind of obsession that I had to have with narrative events, you know, and the kind of genre, adherence to genre. I said, well, I'll forget all of that and try and make the movie about authenticity of emotion. That there would be nothing between the character and the actor. There would be nothing between the movie. So people could say, I love you, and actually mean it, and not mean it as some kind of punchline. So uh, I did, uh, these are, themes, you're quite right, that I'm fascinated with, but I felt that it would be greater expressed without the machinery of plot. In other words, I almost wanted to choose a purposely almost a romantic comedy structure, you know, a man and two women, and remove all of the complications that get in the way of what I would call a direct emotion. Does this make sense? Yeah. Um, what is there about... Uh, the milieu that you find your characters in. Uh, they're immigrants, they live in Queens or Brooklyn, um, they live in Brighton Beach, they're merchant or trade Jews. It's a very you know, working class to mercantile class of people that at some level, you know, 50 years ago serves as a kind of a metaphor for whether America is a fair place you know, to, to be. But now it's really changed. They're different people. What have you found by investigating that group of people and what's important about doing it? 
Well, I, you know, I was always a huge fan of uh, John Cassavetes and Martin Scorsese and, and Francis Coppola and all these people that made pictures in the 70s. And one of the things they always used to talk about when I was a kid and I would read interviews with them or whatever, uh, was they would always talk about making it personal and try and bring themselves to the movie. And I must tell you that what you're talking about is... Uh, very strictly autobiographical. I mean, my family, I grew up in a pretty crappy, semi-attached row house in Queens, which looks like the opening of the show All in the Family. You know, you pass those houses, which are all... And I had the same interior with the staircase going up and the dining room and the living room being the same area and the kitchen in the back and so forth. Anyway, I, I, had, I found my father and mother to be quite obsessed with the idea of social class and, well, we're, we're Jews, and these things determined who we are and were. So I try, I've tried, and maybe not succeeded, but I've tried to put myself into the movies to hopefully give them a sense of authenticity. I mean, that's really where it comes from. I mean, it's not more complicated than that. In essence, what you want... I mean, The Godfather is like a gigantic home movie. I even put his sister in the movie. You know, he's got those... Chinese food cartons, those white Chinese food cartons that he used to have when he was a kid. You know, he talks about it, chapter and verse, Francis, about how much his, of his personality he put into the films. And, and that's what makes them resonate. So you hope that that's what allows the film to, to sing. Good art is always about difficult choices um, because life is about difficult choices. And here, as we saw in the trailer, Leonard, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is seemingly confronted by a choice between two women, but I th actually think that the choice is about something that's a lot deeper than that. Uh, among other things, it's about whether or not he's connected to home or whether he can leave home. Um, eh, but it's also a choice that was expressed by that great rabbi um, uh, that is well known to all of you, Mick Jagger, uh, who said something about, you may not get what you want, but you know, you get what you need. Um, and at some level, that's really what's being acted out uh, in the psyche of um, Leonard uh, Creditor. Now, that brings me to something rather interesting, the names of the characters. Um, well, let's why, don't you, why don't we discuss a little bit, and maybe just walk people up uh, to the basic sort of uh, plot point uh, of Leonard's choice between the two different women. This, I'm, I'm absolutely horrible at this, but I will try. Um, Joaquin Phoenix plays a sort of a heartbroken soul who has moved back with his parents after having some great difficulties with the breakup. And he's in his, living in his old room, in his old apartment with his mother and his father. And his parents want him very much to be with this young woman who is the family friend's daughter. And Gwyneth Paltrow is sugar daddy, sort of puts her in an apartment across the way. And the movie ultimately becomes about and he becomes obsessed with her. She doesn't really have sexual attraction for him, which is why, by the way, you're quite right in what you said about the choices being other than the two women. I had never meant for it to be, you know, Joaquin Phoenix chooses between hottie one and hottie two, and I never, I had never imagined that to be the story. I had imagined it to be that he really is totally blind to the loveliness of the woman with whom he might have a relationship, and that Gwyneth is a kind of almost blind obsession that makes no sense. In any event, to make a long story longer, he, uh, he, he is obsessed with Gwyneth, and madness ensues. Uh, you know, one of the things that I mentioned to uh, Donna Gelati, your producer, is that 
Um, I saw the film in Cannes where it had its world premiere last May. And then I, subsequent to uh, then, I've seen it again. And it's a film that really impresses me. And I, and I mean this quite sincerely, that when you see it a second time, which is the acid test of any good film, or a third time, do they get better or do they fall apart? And the film gets better um, because you begin to start to unpack how nuanced it is and how carefully things have been thought out. To, to, the, to the point where I started thinking about the, the, the names of the characters. Leonard uh, comes from the Craditor family. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, uh, Gwyneth's character is Michelle Rausch. Uh, Gwyneth is the blonde in the, the slinky, you know, black dress uh, who intoxicates him. And Rausch, is there anybody here who speaks German? And Rausch in German means? It's sort of like being drunk. Yes? Okay. Um, now, I know you thought about that uh, because you're a crafty guy. Um, and, of course, the other girl, the girl that his family wants him to marry, played by um, uh, Vanessa Shaw, uh, is Sandra Cohen. And Cohen, of course, are priests in, 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 in mythic rabbinic lore. Creditor, uh, I stumbled over a little bit, but I knew there had to be a meaning for it. It just sounds like, you know, what it sounds like, which is that to whom a debt is owed. But I don't know what language that comes from. <laughs> I'm going to disappoint you. The other names were chosen for those reasons, and you're the first person to ever talk about this with me, ever. So I'm very impressed. But I'm going to disappoint you on Kratator. Kratator is... In, Leonard Kratator was my dad's best friend in Brooklyn in the 40s and 50s, and he used to tell me stories about him and his friend Leonard, Lenny Kratator, and I always thought that was such an unmovieish name and so great and detailed, and, like, no human has ever had that name, but it doesn't sound like a fake name. So I said, well, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to, and I found out, my father had found out that he died, you know, and he was very sad about it because it was his best friend he'd lost touch with for 30 years. I said, I'm going to pay a little homage to Lenny Kratator and all those great stories you told me, and that's the name. And then I find out that Leonard Kratator's daughter is like contacting my dad after like 30 years, like, did you know my dad? Can you tell me stories? This is because she's seen the trailer to the movie or something in a theater. So uh, there's no mystery behind that. I'm sorry, I can't. But the Roush thing is yes, that and so and Sandra Cohen, of course. I mean, it's such an archetypal Jewish name, you know, that it's such a. I was a kind of my Bernard Malamud thing, you know, where I wanted to make the ethnic roots so strong with her that it was part of the fetish that he couldn't stand, you know, part of the life that he wanted to run away from. But so you're quite right. All right, let's meet um, the. The, f the first uh, young woman, Sandra uh, Cohen, um, played by Vanessa Shaw. That is one quality woman. The Cossacks come and you know, burn down your house, and she'll be there with a pitchfork. You just know you can count on her forever and all time and plus 20 years. Um, so we like her. Um, when you set about writing this with Rick Manello, uh, what were some of the things that you discussed about uh, that character and what kind of an actress you wanted to you know, pull in to be able to to bring her to life. Well, we we wanted the uh, I mean, just not to put too fine a point on it. I wanted the opposite of Jeannie Berlin. You know, I don't know how many of you have seen the original Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin, which is actually quite a good movie. But uh, I wanted the opposite of the kind of the whining Leonard. You know what? I really think you know. I didn't want that at all. What we wanted was someone who was earthy and quite lovely 
And I kept saying to the casting director, I kept saying, I want a kind of young Claudia Cardinale before, the, before she became the sort of sex symbol. I said, I want someone earthy and beautiful because I want the picture to be about that fact that he's blind to any of her positive qualities. And, I, I, and so I, I was looking around for the right actor, and I couldn't find her. Finally, I, I, I think it was Donna who said, what about that girl, the producer, Donna Gelati, who's here? She said, what about that girl from 310 to Yuma? So I saw 310 to Yuma, and this, this woman has this fa fabulous part where she says absolutely nothing to Russell Crowe as, as he seduces her. And I said, oh, she looks great. That's such a great idea. And I met her, and she had long blonde hair, and she looked like she had just jumped off the cover of Vogue. She looked like a shiksa goddess, and I thought, well, that's not going to work, even though she's quite lovely. And I said, you know, I'm happy to meet you, and you're wonderful in that film, and I love the way you look, but... I don't really think you could pull off a Jewish girl. She said, my real name is Schwartz. I said, you got the part. But I, I, the original conception of it was that it was supposed to be not the kind of whining, distasteful stereotype, you know, of the girl who is kind of miserable. So then, because then that's, you know, that's not, it's not about that, you know. It's, it's about the fact that someone could be lovely, but it's not part of your fetish, you know. I don't mean fetish like S&M. I mean... You know, like the, the, the trappings of her, the family that she's from, or maybe she, you know, I don't know. It, it's not his type, really. Also, as they're all, the two families are having dinner, and uh, at one point, Leonard's father says to him, you know, why don't you take her into a room and, you know, show her your photographs? You know, I mean, such is the state of uh, Leonard's case of arrested development that he has to have his father sort of pimp his own etchings, you know, for his son uh, to, to get him into the room to, to make this shidduch. This is a, a union of families. This is the way it's been done, you know, for all time. Well, I can take a, a wild guess that in a secular America, there is a point in every young Jewish male's life when he is torn between the woman who gets his jokes and the blonde in the little black dress. It just comes with the turf. Uh, but the inspiration for that may have been personal. You can go there if you want. But I read that it also had to do with a Lucino Visconti film, White Nights, which was adapted from a Dostoevsky short story in his Notes from the Underground collection, the story being set in St. Petersburg, slightly different personal dynamics, character dynamics. But why don't you talk a little bit about how that whole creative formation came about for you? Well, it, ironically, it, beca it began with uh, Gwyneth. Um, I, had, I had known Gwyneth for many years, and uh, uh, I ran into her at some party, and I said, oh, you know, how are you? You're not really acting, are you now? And she said, no, I'm raising my kids, you know, and I don't really care anymore. I said, well, I said, you know, she said, you wouldn't, you, I couldn't act with you anyway. I said, what do you mean? She said, you make movies about guys with guns. So I, I, I kind of, I was a little bit of a kind of a goad, and I said, well, I, I said, Gwyneth, I don't just, I can't, that's not the only thing I can do. She said, well, it's all you have, and what am I going to play in those movies? So I thought, okay. And I started to think about something that, I mean, it did literally start me thinking about something that removed the genre element that we were talking about. And um, just around the same time, I had gotten my wife pregnant, intentionally. And I had to go to the doctor, uh, for genetic testing, and if you are an Ashkenazi Jew, there are 16 diseases, I, it was uh, 17 maybe, I can't remember now, that you could be a carrier for, a gene carrier for. 
which is really science's version of destiny, if you think about it. And the, the genetic counselor, of course, my wife, who's the blonde chicks of goddess type, she was negative for everything, and I was like, you know, positive for 16 of these genes carries. And, and I, said to, I said to the woman, I said, what do we do now? And the genetic counselor said, nothing, you're fine. You won't carry, your children will not keep the, your, your wife is negative, so it's fine. I said, what happens if both couples are, po both members of the couple are positive? She said, it's really bad. She says, I have Jewish couples come in and both are positive as gene carriers for something like Tay-Sachs disease. Now, what that is, not to get too technical or medical on you, and Joaquin refers to it in that first clip you saw, Tay-Sachs is a disorder where basically the child dies by the age of four and there is no option. I mean, you, the, it's so tragic because nothing that can help it. It's just inevitable. So I said, well, what happens with couples like this? She said, sometimes they break apart. They can't survive that. They know they cannot have children biologically without this terror, and they won't do it. And the relationships end. I thought, well, that's a great idea for a story, and I sort of wrote it down and put it in the drawer. And I kept thinking I, I wanted to make a movie of that, but I couldn't think of how, because then it would be like, you know, the main character walking around going, I got the gene, I got the gene. And that's the corniest, most horrible, you know, Hallmark Hall of Fame idea ever. That insults Hallmark Hall of Fame, in fact. So I said, I can't, I can't do that. I put it in the drawer. And then I was waiting for We on the Night to get made, because Mark Wahlberg had committed to like 72 movies in a row. And I pulled off the shelf for a little light reading. I pulled Dostoevsky off the shelf. I had read White Nights 20 years ago, but wanted to revisit it and see what it was like, you know, because when you read these things in high school, they don't really reverberate. And I loved it, and what I found was interesting about it was that Dostoevsky was writing, you know, in the 19th century, it's early Dostoevsky, it's considerably earlier, I think, than Notes from the Underground, although it's the same collection you're writing, it's in the same vein. That he was writing about, the Underground Man is basically someone with serious mental problems who today would be given all kinds of drugs, you know, Paxil or Prozac or, you know, any one of a host of pharmaceuticals and, or even maybe put in a straitjacket. And I thought, well, it would be interesting to update that version of the underground man, which ma makes its appearance in White Nights, because it's a wonderful, because of that kind of bipolar thing, it's a beautiful, exaggerated version of us when we are in love. The nature of desire is so preposterous. Like... We do crazy things when we're in love, right? Like, we're, we're 30 years old or whatever, and we call the woman up, and she says, hello, and we go click, and we hang up, right? It's like activities we would have done when we were, like, 12. You know, there was a judge in New York named Saul Wachler, I think. I'm trying to remember. He's an established guy, Republican judge. Everyone loved him. He was really respected. And at the age of, like, 56, he was, like, following this woman around and looking in her window and acting like a 9-year-old. So I thought, well... That's the genius of Dostoevsky in this little short story he did about this obsession that this young man has for this woman. That's such a pleasant sound, isn't it? Um, and it was really an exaggerated version of us and who we are and how desire can drive us kind of mad. So I combined the element for backstory that I, from my own life, and grafted it onto White Knights' story and kind of tried to update it. Because you couldn't just shoot White Knights. And by the way, Visconti knew it, which is why it's all shot in the soundstage and very surreal. He didn't shoot a realistic version of it. So that was really how the film came together. But before I open this up to you, um, so you should start thinking about your comments or, or questions. You know, I also saw that where in things that I'd read that you'd 
you'd seen other uh, sort of influences. Uh, Vertigo, which uh, was about love and obsession, and Polini, uh, particularly Knights of Cabiria and La Strada. Forgive my rather pedestrian mind, I kept on seeing scenes from uh, Marty and Saturday Night Fever, <laughs> because they're in that movie. I don't know whether they're conscious or not, but um, um, there seemed to be, you know, at the risk of being glib, about five or six plots in the world. Uh, and you, you have to um, figure out how to take um, and push beyond what's been done. Uh, so you worked with Rick Manello to figure out how to take that 19th century milieu as defined by Dostoevsky and make it relevant to today. Kids living at home, et cetera. Why don't you talk a little bit about that process of, of pushing yeah. into what's new? Well, uh, it's funny you mentioned that aspect of the story of young adults living at home. I had come across an article I was conceiving of, and I thought, well, does he go back with his parents or something? And then I came across an article, it might have been the New York Times, maybe in the Washington Post, I can't quite remember, about two years ago, in which it said that there were the largest number of 30-somethings living with their parents since the Great Depression. Uh, and I found that very interesting. Because, I, in fact, I've, I've heard people, you know, I've been do, here doing press for the last couple of days, and some people have said to me, is that realistic? Is that realistic? I'm thinking, well, if you live in Manhattan and you make $900,000 a year or whatever, no. But you, you venture nine miles out, and, I, you know, I got friends who were living with their parents at the age of 38. And we, Rick and I, we, when we read the story, really what we wanted to steal was the idea of a person who was, in a sense, mad, but use that only as a metaphor, what is that word, for us. And you mentioned vertigo. The thing that drove us about vertigo, because may I say there are very few films made in this country that treat love as a kind of subject for seriousness. We make excellent and have made excellent comedies out of the subject of love for exactly the reason I was saying that our behavior is ridiculous, so it's funny. But Vertigo had at its core a couple of really amazing things about it, one of which was that Jimmy Stewart needed the allure of her elevated social class to find her appealing. He needed, in other words, she couldn't just be Kim Novak. She had to be Kim Novak dressed up as the more elegant, I don't know if you've seen Vertigo, but if you haven't, that's really a problem that needs to be fixed as soon as possible. He needed all the trappings as well. And I thought that was such a great touch. So Manello and I kind of tried to forget, in a sense, the Dostoevsky story. And we based it on people that we knew as accurately as we could and stole from our own lives. And Manello was living with his mother at the time we were writing this. So uh, we kind of just stole from his own life. And I stole like, the, you know, the furniture in his room. I stole from Manello's. And the furniture on the wall of the apartment is from my dad's house. And we tried to personalize it as much as we could. But I must tell you, in all frankness, uh, we, I didn't think so much about updating. Because in a sense, what you want, you, you view the life of a film, or one views the life of a film, almost as a marathon and not a sprint. You, you want it to make sense 50 years from now if you're really lucky. And I, I just thought about what I thought would be a more almost timeless element to it. I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about this without sounding pompous, like I'm going to make something that lasts 50 years. But this is what you're trying to do. I'm not saying this is what I did. Uh, as for Saturday Night Fever and Marty, you know, they're made in a tradition of kind of social realism 
that, by the way, is connected to Italian neorealism. It actually was born from that. And there, you're quite right. We made a very conscious decision to do that because people don't, Americans don't really make films like that. And I, you know, I have a contrarian bone in my body. Everyone does this. I want to do this. So we we thought very seriously about trying to make a kind of almost a neorealist or so, you know, a social drama, which doesn't mean it's realistic. But it had the trappings of that. So you're quite right, actually. Now, I didn't think consciously of Marty even deciding that people, but you're right. Well, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And it's beautiful because you really watch a filmmaker walk a tightrope on, on doing something that's daring on film and making it all work. I think it's really inspired. And it's, it, uh, it, aside from just everything else that's going on between them, it has the mechanics of filmmaking in it as they go from basically window to window and reset the next scene, etc. It, it had Renaissance art and portraiture in it, you know, with a central character or two, you know, going back with all that perspective. It just was loaded and with risk, and you carried it off and uh, really wonderfully. Thank you. So I'd like you to talk about, you know, that scene, because obviously it's a scene that you knew was wonderful, uh, uh, when you did it, well, you may not. You, know. you knew you knew that it, you were doing something special because it's a, it's a real showstopper of a scene. It's a beautiful scene. So talk Thank about you. It. Thank All you. Right. I can All talk right. about it. I just didn't. I don't know, at the time, I wasn't saying oh, that's good. I mean, I, you just. Uh, well, I, I had conceived of it as one shot because the characters are essentially there is very the subtext in the, of, the, of the scene is the text. You know, there is very little, as I said before, very little emotional distance that's between us and the characters. So I thought it would be difficult to cover the scene. You know, I don't know how much you guys know about this stuff, but to set up close-ups over the shoulders and so forth, because then the filmmakers would be telling you where to look in the frame. And what was much more important to me was to create a sense of... Uh, not, uh, to create a sense of objectivity about what we were watching... And I thought very much of a poet, who I, I talked about this last night, a French poet, Louis Aragon, who's less known here. I talked about this last night with these guys. Um, and he wrote a poem which I read right before I started shooting, which really meant a lot to me. And translated into the English, uh, it said, uh, it says, in vain your image comes to meet me, and I am the only one who finds it. On the wall of my gaze, you can find only your dreamed-of shadow. Meaning, of course, that what we love, uh, it, what we think we desire, is just really a projection of what we ourselves want to see. And so I constantly try to put people behind planes of glass or to separate them by brick walls as a way of a kind of a visual objective correlative to that idea. And this scene just seemed to me a perfect opportunity to do that because he doesn't really know Gwyneth Paltrow at all and doesn't frankly make much of an effort to know her. He just knows her image and what, is he, what he thinks he knows, he thinks he loves. And I just thought that was a comment on the nature of desire. So that went into the staging of the scene and I think we did about 27 or 28 takes. It was incredibly cold on the roof, but you have to do that because if you don't, it's all in one take, so it's about four and a half minutes. And if, if you know, if you have a take you don't like, you know, you have no out. 
And I, I guess it's a risk in the sense that if it's too long in the editing room, you're kind of screwed. But no art without risk, right? There you go. Okay. Let's open it up to comments or questions that you folks might have. Who uh, has a thought, a comment? Here we go. Um, i just like to know, as a director, at this time, was Joaquin Phoenix focusing more on acting, or was it then he began, you know what I'm getting at, right? He began to become a rapper, so to speak. And was he difficult to work with? Uh, I, this is my third movie with Joaquin. It was, it's, I have a very good relationship with him on a creative level. No, he was not into his current nonsense at all. I mean, you have to understand this movie was shot in November and December of, 2000, of 2007. So he was not, you know, and his mind was on the movie. He's a very unbelievably dedicated actor, or he was, I don't know. Uh, and I had no evidence of the Michigas that is now ensuing. Uh, and and uh, I must say, I think he's quite a brilliant actor. So I hope that he's lying when he says he's out, you know, because... I, but no, I had no evidence of that, and the set was very... I'm not too, I mean, I, I, he likes his own space, and he likes a lot of rehearsal, but once you're on set, he doesn't like it when you talk to him a lot. So we talk a lot on the weekends, and then once the week comes, he wants his own space and to be left alone. I, 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 I love him. I think he's a great actor. I, I, I hope he doesn't quit. Hi. Hi. I've seen the film, Hi. actually, and it's wonderful, so congratulations. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And I noticed that you gave a character trait of Joaquin Phoenix, uh, that being bipolar. I'm wondering why you made that decision, because I don't think it was necessary uh, for him to have that. Well, I was talking before about the uh, Dostoevsky novella that I sort of based it on, and I was trying to express... I was trying to make a portrait of a person that was a slightly exaggerated form of us. So in a way, we can hopefully see ourselves and our own insanities a little bit clearer. So I was trying to justify, in a sense, the slightly heightened reality of that person. Does that make sense? So that the idea was that you were watching, you could watch another person who is classified a certain way and still be able to recognize his behavior as your own. But because it was more exaggerated, it was easier for us to recognize it. That was really the reason. I wanted to ask you, if I could, about um, the fact that you always write and direct your own movies. Is that something that you plan on doing for the rest of your career? I mean, because I, I don't know what it is to be a Hollywood director. Like, do they send you a script and they're like, work on it? Or are you like, no, I only want to write, you know? Um, you know, the truth is, is that when I graduated from college, I had visions of directing, which, you know, you wore a beret and you had a megaphone and you wore those like riding jodhpurs or jodhpurs however you pronounce it and you know you went action and cut and then you were like the dictator and I realized very quickly that that was an entirely ridiculous way to look at it because I started getting all of these scripts to read and they were horrible and I thought well if I'm going to be the guy to wear the beret and talk into the megaphone I, I can't say action and cut and to, to, to dog shit so what do I do? So I, I started to see the key to filmmaking as writing, really. And it would be hard for me to conceive of something where I didn't have some measure of can say or control over the writing. Now, having said that, if Paul Schrader had sent me Taxi Driver, 
I would have been like, let's go, start date, please, because that's the best thing I ever read in my life, which is not to diminish Martin Scorsese's contributions, fantastic, brilliantly directed movie, but I'm just saying the script was great too. I don't get that. I don't get those scripts. I mean, you've been to the movies. You know what people are writing, right? It's like shits and giggles. It's like, so I, I feel like if I'm going to try and do something interesting, frankly, I'm going to have to write it. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think so, because I don't think there's a tradition of writers writing these days. I mean, back in the 40s and 50s, you had like, I mean, in the 40s, you had like William Faulkner writing scripts. And like, it was like insane. You had such incredible people working on the screenplays. Today, you know, my dentist is like, I wrote a screenplay. You know what I mean? It's like everybody does it. Because cinema is so much the lingua franca of the culture. So um, that's a long-winded way of answering your question. I, I think I'm going to have to write them. Well, let, let's extend the question just a little bit. Your producer is Anthony Katagas and... Donna Gelati uh, on this film, um, basically made sure that the film uh, happened and happened the way you wanted it to happen. So what does a good producer do for you in putting together your vision? That's a wonderful question. It depends actually on the filmmaker, I would say, because some demand very active what they call creative producers, which is people that really get involved with the formation of the work. and. Oftentimes, the work begins with the producer, where the producer will bring the material to a director and to a, you know, to a writer to shape, if it's a book, or for, book, for example. In my case, what I demand or ask from a producer is to sort of a sounding board, someone whose taste I respect, uh, and also someone to, frankly, protect me from the necessities and the nastiness of making the film, making deals and figuring out solving problems that things that I shouldn't have to worry about so that I can focus on where to put the camera, what to tell Joaquin or Gwyneth, for example. So for me, producing is very important, but it's all about doing the stuff I kind of can't and I'm too inept to do and holding the whole movie together as I'm trying to focus on the creative aspect. Uh, that guy, um, he characterizes John Cash, right? You're saying, director? What's that? That guy, he characterizes John Cash. Oh, oh, Johnny Cash, yeah. You did it? No, I didn't do that. But I must tell you, uh, I, I was the one who introduced Joaquin to Johnny, which is one of the strangest dinner dates ever. Watching Joaquin talk to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash had no, it was very funny, because Johnny Cash had no interest in talking about himself. And he just was fascinated. He was obsessed with Joaquin, and he could quote Gladiator at will. So I'm sitting there, and, walk, and Johnny is going like, I love it when Commodus says, and he's talking to Joaquin, and Joaquin is just like, blah, 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 you know, because he idolized Johnny Cash. And that's how he wound up in the movie, because Johnny sort of okayed him to play him, and then he died very shortly after. But it was a very strange match. But no, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm, I'm not the director of that film. Um, I think Little Odessa is uh, one of the best movies ever made, independent films. Um, Thank you. There's a check for you as you leave for that last compliment. Thank you. Um, I, just, I just wanted to know, um, there was a real crescendo in that movie, the climax. I mean, it was just a beautifully ensemble cast of music, the cinematography. There was just, there's no flaws of any kind, although flaws is probably not the right word. That's probably used. Oh, no, I love you. Keep going. Diamonds or something. Um, but I just want to know, without giving this film away, 
Um, did, did it have any of that kind of? Uh, I'm, I'm feeling from the few clips I saw that there's a, a big buildup at the end and climax. Number one, number two. Did you build the location on that set? And number three, Kubrick. I don't know how people know from uh, from from a lot of his films was was uh, famous for doing really long shots. So that's that's just a, a statement of today's you know filmmaking. Uh, when you see a film and has 80 or 90 cuts in it, it's to me it's not acting and it's not it's really it's just just a bunch of shorts strung together right. to try and market it. You know. Well. Um, you're talking about a few things in there. What I would say is, uh, first of all, we did not build anything. No, everything was shot on location in uh, Brooklyn and in Manhattan, and then the apartment building itself, which frankly was in Jersey City. Uh, we, there was no apartment building in Brighton Beach that would have enabled us to take it over for three weeks and to have one apartment where you could look into the other. You know what I mean? So we had to show on location. Now, having said that, um, I like it a lot because... The actors, actors are very attuned to their senses. That's the way they work. And when the actor walks onto a set that is really in a practical location that smells like it would smell and it's filled with all this real stuff and you can't move the camera where a wall would be, you know what I mean? It, all of a sudden, they start to feel like they're in the real place and they, it, it, it starts to move them. And it really inspires performance, I think. And in that way, it's very similar to Little Odessa because on Little Odessa, we didn't build anything. Um, the the uh, question you have about Kubrick and long takes, I, I love long takes, and it's one of the things that movies do very well because you get to look at this, uh, the, them on the big screen, and you can, in a way, it's a democratic frame. You can choose, your eye can roam around the image, and essentially, you can choose what you're looking at. The style of filmmaking that you're talking about really was born because of television. Television is the medium of the close-up. So, because if you had this, for example, the scene that you showed, which is that one shot, which is four and a half minutes long, if you showed it on television, it would be rather difficult to process because the film is widescreen and the figures would be very small, or at least they would be small on old televisions. So the style became close-up, 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 close-up. Now, most people who make films today frankly, have been taught by television. And uh, their aesthetic has been formed by even watching movies on television. So that's why you see mostly close-ups and rapid cutting is simply a result of brutally short attention spans and MTV, I mean, all those things that people talk about, but they're all true, you know, people's attention spans are very... I mean, you go and you preview your movie, and they always say, that movie's too long, and it doesn't matter how long the movie is, the movie could be like 81 minutes, that's too long. It's like, no, the movie isn't an enema, you don't want to get it over as quickly as possible, you know, so I never understood that, you know, people walk into the theater and want it to end, you know. As far as uh, um, the film editing and, and the music process on the editing and the cutting room floor, how much are you are you there for the whole thing? Do you get your final say, or do you just kind of send it off and, and hope for the best? Well, I, I, that would, that would, I'm a total obsessive person, and there's no way that I would ever ever not be there for every step of the process. I mean, I I I, I don't think I've ever missed a single hour of a mix or anything. No, I mean, I'd like to take the credit or the blame if it's mine. If my name's on it, I got to be there. I wish I could show you the ending. It's a wonderful ending. Yeah, James has either been fairly or unfairly called the master of the ambiguous ending, hence the name Gray. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, I, 
at one point, uh, you know, you might look at it and feel that the ending is ironic and maybe a little bittersweet. At another point, you might look at it and, and think that it's fate, uh, something called beshert, what's meant to be. Uh, how you interpret the ending, I think, uh, says a lot about you as an audience member and how you feel it really ends, uh, what foot it lands on, the left foot or the right foot. Uh, I know that I would have felt one way about this film when I was younger, and I feel another way about it when I'm older, which is really interesting to me. It's really the mark of, I think, a great film. So I hope you take that inspiration with you out into the great wide world and tell your friends about uh, meeting James Gray and hearing him about his really wonderful film, Two Lovers. Thank you so much. Good Thank luck. You. The film comes out March what? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. The film comes out March tomorrow um, at a theater near you. Go tell your friends. Go see it. Thank you. Thank you so much.